Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Okay. Um, a little bit of background myself, but, and thank you for having me on the call. Oh, Michael, it's my pleasure. Thank you for being here. Um, okay. I started out in banking many years ago. Um, I was a trader for exchange money markets and this so monster called the structured products, which is, uh, mostly the keywords these days, right? <laughs> so for structured products, um, what I discovered was that, um, the only thing that gets it moving is actually all the data that's around the world. And that's what moves and more structured products in finance world. And from then, I managed to move into a fintech company, um, Thomson Reuters, where also realizing that data forms a very important part of everything that goes around the financial world, and in fact, more than just that. And at that time, um, even before, um, even before we had these uh, internet analytics, even before big data analytics came into play, um, I discovered that uh, I wanted to be able to change and influence the way the customers use our products in Thomson Reuters. And through a stroke of luck, I found a very obscure server. Uh, that contains every single record on how each individual who uses our product clicks what he clicks on and the duration which he clicks on. And from that, I was able to map out, uh, create a heat map as to how people use that uh, application. And bringing it back into the company, we were able to use that to move how company could use campaigns, specifically targeting at specific areas of the application. And I used the knowledge that we gained from all those data and try to influence the way customers use an updated version or new features of the product. And that was where uh, I, I went, went, went into, a, into a technology kind of area. And um, because of financial crisis and all those stuff, uh, there was a structural change in Thomson Reuters. And then that was where I moved back uh, into banking for a year. And then I moved into another fintech before I moved into e-commerce. So I guess many people have uh, asked me previously, how did someone from banking end up in, as e-commerce? So where I was uh, in the e-commerce company, many several of the founders were actually ex-bankers as well. And we had something very common. We realized that in e-commerce, there's one big thing that differentiated from everything else, and that's data. So in Encanto, which I, I came from, uh, that we use data to understand how customers both from a, a retailer perspective as well as from a consumer's perspective, a shop and supply goods. I actually came up with many different processes, um, look in terms of how we can use those data and how customers actually shop to provide consultancy services to 
many of the retailers that came to us, and um, we had retailers from the major brands, how to wait to startups as well. And that was where I started. Yeah, Michael? Yeah, so do you want to talk a little bit about how the experience that you had as a banker, right, and also at Thomson Reuters. So, so Thomson Reuters is also very interesting, right? Had big competition from companies like Bloomberg, who had also built their business on, you know, accumulating lots of data and providing data anal- data analysis tools, right, for um, for traders, but also, you know, for investment bankers as well. I don't think actually it's a big stretch for someone coming out of a trading and investment background to then move into e-commerce, particularly because the use of data, but also because of the use of technology to understand patterns, right? And then to build algorithms based on those patterns and then to help clients essentially automate parts of their businesses using um, what we called, at least in the trading world, algorithmic trading. But in this case, you know, they're just algorithms to go out and kind of understand patterns for businesses to use from logistics. Do you want to talk about maybe how you did that and how it was different for small startup companies, what their experience like was dealing with Enchanto and also for bigger brands, like if you had Adidas as a client or if you had, you know, Ralph Lauren as a client, how how did they approach those things differently? Okay. I think how I did it was this, okay, from from the data perspective, I think if you look at uh, the different set of clients that we had, we had big names, um, big FMCG's names, I can't, can't give it as a name, but the big FMCG's names who wanted to have an omni presence, right, across both the physical space as well as the online space. But that, let's talk about these big names right now where a lot of them doesn't want to be, seems to be cannibalizing from their uh, retailers. Um, but on the same note, they also realized that a lot of these retailers um, were not doing sufficiently to put many of their new products out there. There's also from uh, the data analytics that uh, was provided, many of these big brands realized that uh, to reach, to, to introduce new products in a market, e-commerce or the online space was the best way to do it in terms of both cost efficiency as well as in time saving, you are able to reach a much wider audience. And this audience, being more savvy in terms of technology, being more savvy in terms of uh, testing new products, are more ready to accept and to pay a little bit amount of money to just try those products. That was where those big brands came in. And also from then, they were also able to have a much greater understanding as to how consumers perceive and use those products. Not just the brand new products, but those products that's out in the market for a long time. So they, those big brands achieved that, but they had one big advantage. Aside from the data that we collected and then we uh, provide a data analytics back to the company, they also have their own set of data which they have collected over a period of time. Now, for those smaller startups, is a different thing. They would have a lot of these entrepreneurs, they, they, they have this idea as to what type of products they want to sell. But the thing was, they have access to the product production. They have access to um, the designs that they have in mind. I'm giving you an example here of someone manufacturing streamware, for example. Sure. Now, 
if this person knew that okay, he is very passionate about uh, this particular make of swimwear, this particular model of swimwear, which he believes that is um, ready for great acceptance in Asia. Got it. Now, he goes to China or India. He designs it. He produces it. Now, he brings it back into a few countries in Asia which he want to sell. But he wants to be able to test which country accept what type of swimwear better. Now, he has a few choice, right? In a traditional way, he could go to the retail shops, the department store, and try to get them to sell his product. There are costs to him because uh, for a small brand, a new brand like him, um, there is virtually almost zero marketing uh, being put on it. Departmental stores and the big retailers are often very reluctant to bring that in and shelf it. And even if they do, they bring in very small quantity. So it's a chicken and egg thing. But if he does it in an e-commerce way, he has a lot of freedom, he got a lot of flexibility, and he can reach greater scale. For example, it's as easy as him setting up a web page. And through technology that you and I already know, Machanto, Softify, it's very easy for him to set up an online store. Now the challenge for him would be how does he fulfill those orders? And he can definitely fulfill that order from a single location. Will he want to do that? Maybe for a start. But as he grows, he would be targeting more than just one country, multiple countries. He has option of either sending those goods out from his country, for example, Australia, or from countries which the customer buy from, or from country, or ship out from countries which are nearer to the customers. In this case, perhaps he want to stock some goods here in Singapore, some in Malaysia, some in Indonesia, some in Thailand, for example. And this is where, if he had to set up several different outfit, um, of fulfillment centers of his own there, he's going to cost him a lot of money. In addition to that, he may not necessarily know how much of each particular model he should actually stock in each one of those fulfillment centers. What is his biggest issue? His biggest issue that he lacks data. Now this is where we can come in to help these type of customers. We, over a period of years, um, companies like what I'm doing, um, we have collected sufficient data to form enough patterns to advise this particular customer. We are able to advise this customer based on the data that we see on what type of models would be likely to be popular in each one of those countries. As I must, uh, swimwear. Some country uh, consumers are more um, conservative, some are more open. Since he has a wide range of different type of models, he can store several different type of models more in one particular model in one country than the other country. Now that's one area of advising the customer. The other area of advising customer is of course buying patterns. Um, it may not always be the case where November, December period where there's Christmas and uh, all the seasonal uh, period where they have the most sales. That may not necessarily be the case. So we are able to also advise customer 
when to stop those products. Why? Because it doesn't make sense for the customers to incur a very high warehousing cost throughout the whole year. And then we, we help the customer optimize how much, what to store, how much to store, and when to store it. And this gives this customer a very big advantage, especially if he is uh, a startup or he is a small uh, and medium enterprises. And because of that, we were able to help the customer grow his business very fast, very rapidly, and very targetedly, uh, so to say, without having to spend a big sum or invest a big sum in all these logistics and warehousing requirements. Yep, so a company like Enchanta Red also had logistics um, bases and, and warehouses in multiple countries and in multiple locations. Is that right? Okay, uh, we had uh, several, but when we actually moved, uh, Enchanto was a East, a software company, so we developed the platform to which e-commerce sat on. The reason why I ran a warehouse in Enchanto was actually more of using it as a uh, testing ground. It was more like a lab for me. From that warehouse which I ran, and from all the merchants which came in, we were able to test out our processes, our theories, and fine-tune the software based on those processes that we developed in the warehouse. We developed this into such a fine art and science that uh, our software got very recognized out there in the market. And we actually literally uh, sold our software into many countries in Southeast Asia. And they actually use our software right now in those countries. So I moved from being someone very logistic operations back into my key area, which is software and software implementation uh, and professional services, where me and my team goes in um, to help this customer implement the same software and same processes in their warehouse in a different country. So is that that's what you're doing now, right? In other words, through your company, which you call Impression Matters, is that what you're doing now? No. Impression Matters uh, is my own company, literally. Uh, I help... It, I do many different things in uh, Impression Matters. Okay. Uh, one of which is that uh, we help a lot of people who wants to come into the digital space, specifically into e-commerce, to understand what are the steps that they need. I help them create a digital presence. I broker them to the appropriate softwares. um, And I connect them to the different... um, last mile partners, different first mile partners as well as the clearing partners for them to be able to start this thing off in the shortest possible time and in the most cost effective manner. So can you tell me exactly how that works? Let's let's say I'm a startup company and I found a product in China or I found a bunch of products in China that I want to first sell in Thailand and then let's say I want to branch out into Malaysia or Indonesia and Vietnam. So I Mm -hmm. I come to you, I know the product, so I'm a product person but I don't really understand sort of the distribution model or maybe the proper software that I use to interface properly with, 
you know, the warehouse management software or, you know, the ERP, so the enterprise resource management software, all, all this kind of stuff. Can you just walk me through the process that you would do if you were consulting for me and exactly how that works? Okay. So if I were consulting for you, the key thing here is you only need to know one thing. What's you only that? need to know what are the products you want to sell. Right. Where they are coming from. Yep. And you and all the pricing and all these things, you already have something in mind. And you know where you want to sell it to. So for me, I will come in and advise you. Uh, say, for example, you are taking in... Um, uh, let me keep it very simple. Uh, you are taking in some mobile phone accessories for the new iPhone 10. Sure. Right. Taking that as an example, right? Okay. So, if using that as an example... I will be coming to look at your products uh, that you have in mind. There are two ways or three ways you can actually do this. You have to decide whether you want to... Is a product so exclusive that you may want to only sell exclusively on your own webshop, which you can create using Shopify or Magento. That's the first decision you need to make. Okay. If it's not meant to be exclusive... It may be something that you want to also distribute towards uh, throughout the different e-market space. For example, you want to sell in Lazada, you want to sell in Q10, or you want to sell in Amazon, for example. Now, it also has to do with the type of uh, positioning you have for your, your, your set of products as well. Consumers have different expectations on when they shop in all these different marketplaces. So if it's more more premium product, for example, like for example, if it's a fashion product, you may be looking at Zara and perhaps even Lazada. But if it's more mass market and the price point is uh, positioned at a much lower price point, perhaps more towards uh, Shopee or even in marketplace like Q10, for example. That's the next decision that you have to make. So t- I haven't made those decision. Yeah, you- so, so this is really interesting for me. Can you tell me like Shopee, right? So this seems to be a very successful company. What's the difference between what Shopee is doing um, at scale and what Lazada is doing or even what like Buzzy Bees is doing? I'm just curious from your perspective how you make a determination what the difference is between how those companies can help. Because what you're essentially talking about is multi-channel distribution or omni-channel distribution, yeah? That's right, yeah. So how are those things different? Again, if I'm a retailer and I have a product I love, how do I try to decide which one of those distribution mechanisms are going to be the most efficient for my product? Okay. Uh, to answer that question, it also depends on your budget as well. Okay. Commission rates for the different marketplaces are very different. The way that different marketplaces um, markets the products and charges you are also uh, have also quite range between the more premium one and the less premium one. So the difference between Shopee, Lazada, Amazon, etc. also depends on your budget as to how much you are willing to spend to be on those app on channel. That's one, your budget. Also, on the other flip side of things is that if your products, if you deem your products as being premium, for example, and Shopee versus Lazada, they are um, built at different uh, 
uh, if you look, if you place them in a different mat- into, into a matrix between um, the exclusive, or one exists in exclusiveness, right? And one exclusive, uh, one one exists in um, the uh, price point. You can place them rate rather not really close, but somewhere around the same uh, matrix, same same quadrant of matrix. Now, if you are looking at these two marketplace, for example, yeah, and if you're coming to me, my question to you is that: Do you want to put them in the same quadrant? Yes or no? But on top of that, Shopee is uh, up and coming. Lazada is well invested, has a huge reach, potentially. Um, it can reach to a much bigger uh, audience. Would you want to put it in Lazada rather than in Shopee? But if it's something you want to just try out, could be on Shopee, for example. It, it has a lot of considerations, so so it depends on also the set of products. Right. I mean, I guess the big question for me is, as an e-commerce provider, or just as a product lover, how do I determine whether it's better for me to put it into a massive marketplace like Tokopedia or like Lazada, where I'm competing with literally two to two and a half million other products, or to put it into Shopee, which may not have the same level of distribution, but where the competition for products is less, so discovery is easier. Like, what's your view? What's your view on that? What's my view on it? My view on it is your positioning is uh, very important, or your uh, your wish for uh, your determination on what position your product should have is very important. For example, right. Bringing you back to the example of uh, the swimwear, for example. Right. Many of these swimwears, if you go to any market, any e e marketplace, you probably will find a whole lot of different swimwears there. But if you believe that your swimwear should be positioned in a sub premium market, you wouldn't want to put it into a. Uh, Marketplace which may be deemed as um, more mass or more mass consumer based type of a marketplace. Although the price which you sell on both marketplace may be the same, but then you'll be losing out on uh, people believing your positioning for that particular set of products. Do you, do, you, uh, do you understand what I'm trying to tell you, Michael? Yeah, I mean, kind of, but that's what I'm trying to get at, right? So if I'm, I'm relying on you for consulting services, right? I have a product that I like that I think people are going to buy. And I really want to rely on you and your team, whether it's the you know bigger sort of more sophisticated team that sits at Anchanto or the team at Impression Matters to try to help me figure out which one of those marketplaces is going to get me the best optimized both distribution and price for my product, right? Because the other choice for me is to sort of get a Shopify store, right, and use all of their embedded tools, their connectivity with, you know, the Taobao stores in China and just to directly source products right away. And I can use some of their analytics to determine which products are the best sellers. But if I want to sell, you know, sort of more differentiated products or even design a product for myself, how do I figure out, if I'm an e-commerce provider, how do I figure out what the best way is to distribute that and the best price at which to sell it? Because... 
you know, someone like you is going to have more data than I'm going to have on my end because you're going to have all this anonymized data, right? All I'm going to have is the data that's associated with the products that I have. I can go out and pay for more data, but that's just much too expensive. So I'm relying on a consultant who has access to all that data. What, what do I learn from that consultant to help me determine where the best place is to place that product? You're absolutely right. Because um, if, we, if I will come back to you, with uh, data that I have in my database, right? And if there is a similar set of products which currently some other retailers are already having, without having to share that specific details. Correct. Being able to tell you that that was uh, when we ran this for this particular marketplace, for this set of products which is very similar to what you are trying to do, we are positioning that you are trying to achieve. This was the success rate. This is something that um, we have done for some of the brands out there. Now, but that being said, many of these marketplaces today, they also have those set of data on their own. And in fact, those are the biggest set of data that they see. That's why uh, brands like Lazada, for example, they are already starting, I know for a fact that they are already starting to look at data in a more holistic manner to present to both their retailers as well as the consumer in terms of their preferences. Very much like what Amazon have been doing for many, many years. But Lazada uh, and all the marketplaces have just started to do that. Um, not only are they able to crunch all this data, they are able to reach out to the consumers in a more targeted manner. So, very much like what Amazon have done previously, Lazada has just started, um, in my opinion, they might have just started to target really specifically what consumer, actually, their, their customers actually bought. So if you lock on Lazada, is nowadays is smart enough to recommend you some products based on uh, your previous search history, etc., etc. Now, if you look at perhaps the smaller ones like Shopee, they are just beginning to start to do that. And if you look at Q10, for example, when I log into Q10's account, I don't see them doing that. Now, if you place your items in places like, for some Q10 and places like, for some Lazada, for example, and you have a premium item, which you know that you want to reach out to a very targeted manner, I would advise you to use one of those marketplaces which already have that set of data which is able to present to you in a much better way, complement with the set of data which I already have to go into that particular marketplace. But uh, if your set of products is uh, somewhat doesn't require a lot of positioning, well, based on the cost uh, budget that you may have, well, I would recommend that particular set of uh, retailers or of merchants to use a different set, a lower price, more mass market, more rich, and a wider reach, such as a Q10 marketplace. Right, so I guess the, the follow-on question to that is, how does a company like Q10, or how does a company like Shopee compete? And this is kind of a, it's a little bit of a tangential question, but how do you see the market consolidation that's taking place, right? So really big players like Orami, Tokopedia, um, 
you know, Alibaba comes in and buys Lazada. Zalora kind of has less prominence, but how do you, and, and then 11th Street comes in, heavily financed, right, by SK Telecom. Um, how do the smaller sort of e-commerce sites compete with those big players, or do they just move their products over to those new platforms and then try to sell them through there? And I guess in Southeast Asia, from your perspective, do we end up in a situation where there's just one or two kind of really big monolithic e-commerce providers like we have in the United States. I mean, Amazon kind of runs, you know, 50% of the e-commerce market in, in the U.S., even with big competition from companies like Walmart through Jet. What do you think the situation is going to look like here in a couple of years after all this consolidation and the power of consolidation takes place? Like, what does it mean for the smaller providers and what does it mean for for the retailers? We, we were, I think, in my opinion, we will definitely see a lot of consolidation in terms of the market space. Uh, as I said, right now, um, we see a lot of um, duplications or somewhat duplications between the different marketplaces anyway. But that being said, uh, there are segments of the marketplace, for example, in fashion. These are kind of specialized um, typically, when it comes to fashion, like for example, Zara, etc., if you have a fashion product, and when you want to sell, you will typically think of Zara first in Singapore, then perhaps other marketplace. Now, this is where I see, in terms of the industry, fashion being one of them, and other segments which there might be some specialization into those market space. Another area which I see potentially could have its own um, segment like fashion could be things like technology. Today you can buy any kind of technological product through almost any marketplace. Um, so a lot of these technology products are one and same. So the only different thing, thing there is based on the particular specification that you want, for example, um, a memory chip or, for example, a, a processor. You go into a different marketplace and what you shop for, you shop based on which has the best price. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, because most of those products end up being commodities, right? Yeah, it's commoditized and you will be able to go in and then you say, okay, I'll buy from this particular marketplace because it's offering me the best price. Now, however, for technology products, aside from price, uh, many people are also looking in terms of product support, in terms of warranty, in terms of exchange, uh, exchange policies and all those things. Now, that is one segment which today we have Shops in Singapore, for example, Challenger, right? They have their own uh, e-commerce shop. I think it's called Hachi Tech, uh, which they allow. They they is kind of um, boutique e-commerce shop for technology. Do they sell on? Do they sell the products on the e the, the different marketplace? I don't recall seeing that they do. They seems to be channeling everything into their own marketplace. Um, which is their own e-commerce website. Now, in terms of those people who are, are 
very specific, very boutique, for example, will they be bought over into the mainstream marketplace, like, for example, will Lazada buy over things like Hachitech or, uh, or any different other um, fashion type of e-commerce? Perhaps there will see some consolidation, but not not so soon. Uh, there's another angle to all those things as well. When we talk about fashion, and unless you are buying a very generic T-shirt, a very generic pair of dress or pants, you know that the sizes that you get would more or less fit. Am I right? Yes. Now, I know for uh, for fact that uh, you're familiar with uh, Amazon Alexa, right? Right. Okay, and then they have this Alexa look. Amazon is actually also collecting uh, size, consumer, physical sizes through that kind of uh, database collection. In a few months' time, when someone logs onto Amazon, for example, in the recommended um, ribbon that they see, they'll probably see clothes that actually fits into their physical sizes. Now, if we bring that back into Asia, for example, and even Alibaba is also developing some sort of this kind of um, this kind of devices and this kind of uh, data collection, we will see perhaps Lazada even having this kind of capability. Now, this is where perhaps Lazada might be looking in terms of acquiring current e-commerce outfit down there who already have a very huge stream of uh, people who are on who have a high number of consumers already in their database. That's one possibility. Right. The other thing is this. When someone shops for fashion, for example, and giving you Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia as example, right? And you are familiar with ASOS? Yes. Okay. Um, ASOS has, and H&M was both of them, they, they are from UK, they are from US, or, or whatever uh, brands out there. A lot of locals prefer to buy fashion clothing items from those type of sites. Now, if you look at that, people who like to buy fashion items from this type of site, so who, how would it place out for the local or the regional e-commerce website. E-commerce has literally shrunken, right, the whole world from a country being each one of their own silo in terms of retailers into one big whole possibility. Anyone can buy anything from any website anywhere around the world. Right. The only limiting thing here is if it's not illegal to get that good in here, Secondly, the amount of taxes that you will be paying for those items into, into Singapore, for example. And thirdly, um, whether the item fits you. We address the, the, the issue as if the item fits you because a lot of these already have your data. You have bought them previously. You know that if you're going for this specific size, this specific model, it will fit you. 
that's taken care of. In terms of accessibility, like I said, if you have many people on a train, when I go onto a train every evening, I see people already shopping on the mobile phones. So accessibility to those international websites are given. So the last challenge is, of course, the logistic end of things. And traditionally, a lot of these um, uh, retailers overseas, they still um, do their fulfillment from UK, for example, or from US, for example, especially for this fashion coming into Southeast Asia. Right. But in the last few months, we do see those big brands coming in to partner up with uh, fulfillment centers to set that up here regionally in Singapore in Indonesia serving both locally or from those different centers out into the countries uh, around the fulfillment center say for example they ship to Singapore and that gets fulfilled back into uh, Malaysia for example or they can shipping it to Malaysia and then uh, that means having a fulfillment center managed by a third party and again, that, that ship out locally as well. That, that is another possibility for them. So with all these kind of things happening in the e-commerce markets, uh, particularly these days fashion being one of the uh, more prominent one, we, we see a lot of these things consolidating uh, in the marketplace. And that is uh, something very exciting. Right. So one of the last topics I want to cover is Amazon, right? I mean, for years in Southeast Asia, we've been sitting here, you know, when Amazon has not been a competitor in the region. And in July of this year, Amazon has just come in full scale into Singapore, and that Singapore entry is just an entry into the rest of the region, right? Mm-hmm. So you're in Singapore. What's your view, sitting there in Singapore, watching Amazon come in and starting to compete with the likes of Lazada, you know, Alibaba, and the rest of the competitors here? What's the impact of that? And, you know, do you think that they end up with as much of the consolidated power here as they have back home? How do you think that works? Actually, thank you for that question. I think it's very interesting. Okay, when I was still in Enchanto, uh, when I first heard of uh, Amazon coming into Singapore, it was a knee-jerk reaction as to, wow, a big brand is coming in here with their software capability, with their expertise, and their um, big budget that they probably have coming to compete in such a small marketplace. When they finally came online to just two months back, or was the last month, um, so I was already a Amazon customer for the longest period of time. So looking into... Um, Amazon Prime Singapore I was kind of disappointed in terms of uh, at the start the range of product that they have they also hit uh, a rock block very similar like what we had in the early days of um, when I was running operations in Chanto the last mile delivery portion of things Singapore is a red dot on the world map. And yet, we have a huge challenge in terms of fulfillment within, at the time, 48 hours. And these days, we are looking at just three hours for fulfillment. The question is, why is that so? 
Right. I mean, that's actually a really good question. So from most people's perspective, looking at Singapore from the outside, they just think that logistics is something that's already sort of solved. It's a solved problem there because the infrastructure is so good. Correct. But you're saying, but you're saying but, that that problem's not actually solved. So what is the what is the issue in Singapore for last mile delivery in a place where there's very little traffic, the roads are really good, you know, and you know payments are pretty easy. So what's the what's the challenge there for the last mile delivery stuff? Okay, uh, to answer this question specifically, let me just let you know that the biggest problem in Singapore for last mile delivery is not so much the delivery itself, but the failure of delivery. What is that? For every, for every time package that they send out, five would be unsuccessful due to the person not being at home. Half of it. So what does it mean to those uh, last mile deliveries uh, parties? They actually have to cut this back to their warehouse and to retry it again either the same day or the following day or the day after, right? So what happens is that it became very costly for these last mile delivery partners. One delivery became two or three because of the few attempts. Now, for those retailers that are looking at this, they would then know that last mile delivery partners are not likely to charge them uh, a low fee for this kind of services. So cost of last mile delivery will still be quite substantial. Now, that being said, I think Singapore um, being such a small country, and if you are looking at fulfilling it within three hours, there are a few schools of thoughts out there, right? That means we have one big, like what Amazon has, one big um, 100,000 square square meter, uh, square feet or square meter, square feet, uh, uh, facility where in a single location in the west side of Singapore. Now, if they want to fulfill an order to the east side of Singapore within three hours uh, on a bike, it is highly possible. But on a bike, the person can only carry two orders. If it's a, a reasonably sized, three orders, maybe if it's small enough on a bike. But Anything bigger than that that requires a car and all those things, it becomes um, more difficult. In Singapore also, in some areas, parking is also an issue. And in Singapore, even if you are a delivery person, you can't park a roadside to deliver. It's, it is against the law, right? You have to find a proper parking space to make sure it's delivered. And that adds up to the time and to the cost to get that delivery done. Now, to resolve all this issue, I think the government has taken very positive steps towards addressing all these things. One being a lockbox kind of uh, facility here in Singapore. There's, I've seen some already been built, and uh, the local post office, the same post, already have those boxes uh, in some very specific malls, some high-volume area, they already have that. We see Ninja Van, and other companies also setting up these kind of boxes across the island. But those are not widespread. Why? Because uh, land cost in Singapore is still very, very high. And a lot of people charge a lot of rental space, uh, charge a lot of 
rental for this time was very small space to rent out to logistic company. Now, but in 70% of Singapore where we have flats and all those things, we already have letter boxes and residents are used to going down to their void decks to open letter box to collect their letters. Then if the government is stepping in to build shed lock boxes for delivery, which they are intending to, just beside those letter boxes, I think this is where we will see e-commerce last mile fulfillment becoming a lot more cost efficient. And a lot more cost efficient both in terms of they not having need having to need to build their own lock boxes, that's one. Two, being able to bring down the cost of uh, last mile fulfillment because they no longer need to um, try again and again for failed deliveries. I think this this will really be a big thing for Singapore. Right. So is this something that the so this is really interesting actually. Is this a business opportunity for someone to create, you know, sort of a locker business, whether it's in, you know, a place where there are multiple flats, you know, where there's a lot of community living, or even for individual homes where people aren't home, you know, people are not there when their delivery arrives, right? Because I think you bring up a good point that the fact that, you know, I order something or three products from Amazon or I order three products from Lazada, but when it gets to my house, I'm not there. So the delivery team has to go home back to the warehouse, right, and then come back and try again. There's got to be a business around building a locker for everybody's house, building a safe place to put that stuff, you know, um, with a bunch of technology and that, so that the delivery only gets made once and it makes that delivery more efficient. Now, is that something that the government's going to do in Singapore? And what does it look like in the rest of the region as well, right? I mean, Singapore itself is not a gigantic market, maybe a good place to test something. But what's your view on if that itself is a viable business, as an adjunct to existing sort of, you know, last mile delivery things, and even just as a service for e-commerce? I think it's a huge potential, not in Singapore though, but in Indonesia, for example, um, in Malaysia. I already know of a couple of ventures out there that already started this kind of uh, uh, capitalizing on these opportunities to build this facility out there. But why not in Singapore? Um, in Singapore, it's a... A lot different because you know why? It's all these different companies we venture into building up these shared boxes. The thing is that getting the last mile delivery parties to share these boxes uh, somewhat are a little bit more difficult because the cost will always be there and it's not going to be cheap. Uh, that's why when the government so the Singapore government talk about building one island-wide managed by one particular um, agency or company and that to be shared throughout the, all the different uh, e-commerce logistic partners. I think that was a good direction that they have taken. But not seen that happen yet. But for opportunities in Singapore to build that um it's going to be harder, but for the other regional, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, I think there are already people starting that. Now, you brought up another good point was that um, if someone to deliver something to me and I am not home, why aren't I leaving, the, if I was delivered to the person, why can't I go to the uh, buyers or consumers neighbor next door and try to leave that with that person? In Singapore, um, 
somewhat a lot of uh, neighbors they don't like to do that not because we are not friendly to our neighbors but um, it's not a culture that uh, we, we do that additionally I think there is opportunity here for people to be paid to use their house as somewhat a uh, storing facility for one day, two days, so that it can, this person can be in the same block or this can be within the few block radius of where the consumer is. So if I miss my delivery, I know that, okay, I see that, okay, it's actually perhaps not at the post office, perhaps it's at someone's house. I go to a person's house and try to collect it. It is, uh, I think someone have really created that here in Singapore as well. But somehow it has not caught on. Um, because the person who stores this item in there might need to be paid. That's one. Yeah, uh, I think. Yeah, my view on this is that it creates too much friction, right? If I order something from an online shop, I want it sent to my house so that either if I'm there, I just get the product right away. I want it to save me all of the friction. Mm of going to an offline retail shop, right, where I've got to drive there or take a taxi there, I've got to actually carry it home if it's a big if it's a big product or a heavy product. I really just want it at my house. And I think the last thing that most people want is to create friction by having to go to another location, even if that location is your neighbor. And again, I think most people, not just in Singapore, not just in Asia, but globally, just don't want to hassle their neighbors. And I think the way to fix this and there are a couple of companies in the in the world that are doing this, is just to create, as opposed to, like you say, a letterbox, which is small and really only efficient for small letters. Just everyone kind of gets a locker of their own that's protected, that's online, that you know has a combination or some type of safety associated with it. And then my deliveries just take place there. That's an app that's associated with it, so I can open that up with my mobile phone, whether it's Android or iOS, and, and that gives me the safety of delivery. And if it sits outside my house, that's okay because the likelihood of somebody stealing something out of that box is going to be low because maybe there's a camera on it. But all those things are good. I think by using your neighbor, you know, the sort of shared delivery points, I don't think are necessarily going to work so well, but only because it creates friction and it creates problems between neighbors. I just don't think that's going to work. But I do think there are businesses around creating sort of safe places for delivery just outside somebody's apartment or just outside somebody's house. Yeah, correct. And, and I mean, it will work if this was purely transactional, right? So you don't feel like you're bothering a neighbor, but um, because you may not know this person and that person has actually been paid to do it. So and it's not too long a distance. I think that, that could be viable if it's transactional in that nature. But uh, again, Singaporeans, perhaps we are lazy. We may not even want to walk a few blocks to go and collect those items. <laughs> yeah. Even if we can collect it from the local 7-Eleven or any convenience shop in the vicinity, I think Singaporeans are over-pampered to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I think I think most people are... I don't think it's a Singaporean issue per se, and frankly, I wouldn't characterize Singaporeans as lazy, but that's just me. Um, but what I do think is that the whole purpose for creating e-commerce is to remove friction from the purchasing, but also from the distribution and the collection of that product. And I, I think whether it's trans, this is just my opinion, right? But I think whether it's transactional or not, having somebody else stand in the middle, like me paying you as my neighbor 
even as an unknown person, to have my product, it just creates more friction than it would be for me to either A, go pick it up myself, or B, just get it delivered directly to my house. But it's an interesting concept, right? Mm, correct. That's why it leads me to the concept, uh, or the last concept, which I really, really advocate. I think recently you might have heard of this in the news that it's already happening in Singapore. For example, Lazada is teaming up with uh, Capital Land Mall. They're creating a mall within a mall concept. Uh, I think that's interesting as well. I think that's a big way, big, big way to go for e-retailers and for merchants as well. Not having to set up their own retail shops in a mall, but having a Lazada store within that mall, and then whatever that they ordered, they can collect it right in the mall or collect it when they go home through third-party delivery services. And actually having a shopping mall operator like Capital Land Mall doing it is, I think it's a very uh, good development as well. I think that's very interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm very keen to see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting concept, right? Creating, and, and it's a good way to end the conversation as well, right? It's a good way to under, try to understand, like, what is that relationship between, you know, what's called online to offline, right? Or offline to online. In other words, how do you optimize for the delivery, the last mile delivery, and is it, you know, having a shopping mall or a physical location in a place where people are working, right, so at the bottom of an office building or even in an existing mall, so that people can go to a place that they're used to going for shopping. It's just a question for me as to what level of friction that creates. But I think it, it leaves us with something really important to think about, and it's a particularly good way, I think, to um, to conclude this conversation. Look, you brought up some really good points, particularly on the logistics side, and I really just want to thank you, Michael, for um, for taking the time to to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Are you? Is there a place where people can find you? Like, what's the best way to find you online if people want to either a get in touch with you or b find out more about what you do and how you do it? Oh, okay. Um, they can look for me. Um, oh, my my web my my business is still being set up right now. Impression matters. We're still. In the process of setting up my webpage, which is uh, www.impressionmatters.today, uh, I can reach be reached at Michael at impressionmatters.today as well. That's my email address. Okay. Look, I really want to thank you again. So thank you so much for your time um, this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Cheers. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.